Let's pray again together. Father, we're so grateful we can gather in this place with your people to sing praises to you, to hear your word, to commune with the Lord Jesus uh, with his body and blood. I pray now for the help of your spirit that you would come and help me preach your word. And I pray, Father, your spirit would do a mighty work in us as we hear your word. Would you produce an abundant good harvest uh, of spiritual fruit as we take your word in? Father, we need your wisdom today more than ever. We need your help. We need your grace. Would you come now and be our strength and be our helper, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So am I the only one who thinks that we as God's people could use some good news uh, right about now? I think 2020 for many of us, uh, it's felt like a steady stream of messengers, right, who have delivered just one piece of bad news after the other, maybe in a way similar to what you see at the very beginning of the book of Job, when several messengers, if you remember, they all come in rapid succession to tell him about all the various calamities that have fell to him. You have to wonder, don't you, if after the second messenger, Job maybe is ready to just run away when he sees someone approach him. Maybe in a similar way, I think that 2020 has conditioned us to recoil with anxiety or fear anytime we see Breaking news flash across our screen because it's become hard to believe this year that breaking news could actually be really good news. In the midst of our culture that presents bad news to us repeatedly over and over again, we as God's people are to proclaim and trust and cling to the good news of the gospel more than we ever have before. We are to announce to our fearful world that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of sin, we as God's people have a reason to get out of bed every day and live a joyful life. We have reasons to rejoice even when things around us don't seem to be going very well. And we have a reason for living that goes so much deeper than political beliefs. Our lives have a purpose that transcends whatever is currently going on in our culture so that no matter what our economy is doing and no matter who our president is, we can be content trusting that God's purposes are really being worked out in the world. In the face of political turmoil and unrelenting pandemics, we have to see and broadcast the fact that our greatest need as human beings has stayed the same, no matter what has changed in our culture. The need to know the living God, to trust by faith the work that he has done and is doing for us right now through the Lord Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. So because the gospel is true, we as God's people, we should really be known for being good news people in a world that is filled with and obsessed with bad news. Today we're going to be looking at one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 31 to 39, a passage that gives us really, really good news, a really great, succinct explanation of what the good news of the gospel is all about. There's really two different aspects of the good news of the gospel we're going to look at this morning. First, we're going to talk about the good news of God being for us in Christ And then we're going to talk about the good news of Christ's love for his people. So the good news of God being for us in Christ, then the good news of Christ's love for his people. 
So let's turn out our passage that we read. Let's jump right into the good news of God being for us in Christ and see uh, what we just read here a second ago. So our passage begins with a series of, of these rhetorical questions that Paul asks, questions that are not so much about seeking information as they are about making a very powerful point. Look at how Paul starts in verse 31. He says, what shall we say to these things? And that these things that Paul is referring to likely include everything that Paul has said up to this point about God's salvation for his people in Christ. This question here tells us that this next passage, this section of Romans, is really Paul's conclusion to just about everything he has said so far in the book of Romans. This first question is another way of Paul asking, what should we conclude about everything we have said so far about God's salvation in Christ? Paul's already mentioned in Romans chapter 3, God's work of justifying sinners through God's atoning sacrifice for sin in Jesus a sacrifice we receive by faith. He's given us this powerful picture of what sets God's love in Christ apart from any other form of love in existence. When he writes in Romans 5 that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul tells us several places in Romans that the fullest expression of God's love is found in Jesus dying in the place of sinners so that people who were once God's enemies can now be reconciled to God and experience his eternal gracious favor. Paul goes on to mention in chapters 6 and 7 of Romans that God has set his people free from the slave master of sin. He has united his people to himself. And as a result, we are now able to present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Most of chapter 8 in the book of Romans is all about God's gracious work for us through the work of the Holy Spirit, how the Spirit dominates and animates our entire Christian life. Through the help of the Holy Spirit, we are empowered now to fight our sin, and He's the one who assures us that we really do belong in the family of God. And just before our passage, Paul gives us some of the most significant and powerful promises in all the Scriptures. You can read in Romans 8.28, a very familiar verse, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then just one verse right before our passage, we read that our salvation from God in Christ is a work that involves God predestining and calling and justifying and glorifying sinful people. So our passage really is the climactic conclusion of everything Paul has already mentioned about the details of the gospel message and what God has already accomplished for his people in Jesus. And so Paul's going to follow this first rhetorical question with another one, a question that in many ways is a summary of everything I just said. He asks in the second half of verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And, of course, the obvious answer that Paul subtly gives us is no one. Because of the infinite favor of God we are given in Christ, then there is ultimately no person or thing that will undo us or thwart the advance of God's sovereign purposes for his people and his creation. But it's easy to read Paul's question, isn't it? Who can be against us? And think about Paul's life and think about our own life and begin to think, Who can be against us? Plenty of people, right? You might remember that Paul himself was someone who was almost killed by Jewish enemies on a number of occasions. He was once stoned by an angry mob and left for dead 
they all walked away because they were pretty sure that they had killed him. On at least five occasions, Paul's captured by leaders in the Jewish community, and he's flogged 39 lashes, 39 being just one number short of what was believed to be the lethal limit at that time. And again, we can think about the people in our own lives who have betrayed us, who have harmed us, who have opposed us in one way or another. And then we can easily think about all the opposition we face, not only on a personal level, but collectively, as a whole, as the people of God. As time goes on, it seems that the enemies of God's people, the enemies of his gospel, they just keep multiplying in our culture, in our politics, on the re- on the left and on the right, in the judicial and educational systems, and in so many other areas of our lives. So what exactly is Paul getting at when he asks this question, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's clear from Paul's letters, and especially the book of Romans, that Paul is always taking the long view of things. He is certain that Jesus' death and resurrection in the past have eternally secured in the present and the future our victory over our greatest enemies, Satan and sin and death. And what we are called to do is patiently await God's outworking of this victory throughout our world and throughout our lives. Paul wants us to understand our own present lives from the eternal perspective of God's ultimate victory. He writes just before our passage in verse 30 that for those whom he is justified, he's also glorified. Now what's really remarkable about this verse is that we will be glorified in the future when Jesus comes again. When he raises us from the dead and judges the whole world. But Paul can talk about this event in the past tense, just like being justified by Jesus' death in the past, because of the certainty of the coming glory. So in other words, we are so certain of God's future, coming final salvation and judgment, that we understand all present opposition to God and his people to be ultimately pointless. And so we know that no matter what kind of opposition we face in the present, we know for sure that God's enemies' days are numbered. And if God really will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, then this means that God will even use our suffering. He'll even use our enemies to further his eternal will. And so God's plan for our lives is unstoppable. It's invincible. And if we're seeking to honor God and live for his glory, then there really is a sense that we are ultimately invincible as well as God's people, no matter how weak or how frail we feel in the present, no matter how fierce opposition feels. God's love for us ensures that nothing and no one will be able to undo God's plan of redemption for our lives. And it's truths like this that compelled men like Martin Luther to write the magnificent words that we just sang just a few weeks ago in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. So Paul continues on with another rhetorical question in verse 32. Look at what he says. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Paul essentially says here that Jesus' death is God's ultimate pledge. It's God's ultimate assurance of his favor and that he will provide for what we need. If we were ever in doubt about whether or not not God is for us, God would have you look to the cross 
the place where God put on display his great love for sinners. Paul's saying that if the father didn't spare his most precious relationship, his only son, then you can be assured that he will graciously provide anything, everything that you need. This language of the father not sparing his own son harkens all the way back to the Genesis story. It's very reminiscent of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his only son at God's command. So God the Father's willingness to give his only son over to death on our behalf, it's God's proof to us that he's never cruel. He's never selfish. Instead, he is the greatest giver. He is the good God of grace who withholds nothing from us that we need. That he would go to great lengths and great anguish in order to save and bless his people. What Paul's doing here is really giving us also one of our greatest weapons in our battle with fear. I think Romans 8.32 is one of our most precious promises in the scriptures because we are constantly living in a world where you have to face the needs and the struggles in your own life on a daily basis. We have financial needs and responsibilities that can weigh us down. The people God places under our care, under our authority, they have needs as well that we are responsible for. Some of you here might be in a season where the task of loving your spouse or your children, it feels so overwhelming that you just feel crushed. You feel so exhausted that you don't, you don't know how you can keep going on. And you're filled with great fear that you're not going to be able to do this. And one of the most powerful lies that fear tells us is that God is not going to provide for what you need. That he has left you. That you are utterly alone to shoulder all the things that you carry. Fear tells us that despite what we confess in our theology, we really do have to live like it's completely up to us. That we must live in a self-sufficient way just to survive. And of course, when you begin to believe these lies and live in a self-sufficient way, it works, doesn't it, just for a little while. It fuels so much of your anxious energy and your activity. But whenever you're faced with your inevitable inadequacies and your deficiencies, the stress of fear rushes back into your heart with a vengeance. People of God, I want you to see that only God's promises tell you that the lies of fear are not true. And that living by faith, it's completely opposed to this self-sufficient kind of mindset. God himself will not hold anything back from us that we need. And so this is a promise that we have to learn to preach to our deepest fears over and over and over again. People of God, we must develop weekly or maybe daily routines of speaking truth to your fear. That God did not withhold the infinite treasure of his son from you, so he will certainly provide whatever you need to face whatever it is you're going through. So Paul continues on in our passage, following his rhetorical question in verse 32 with another one, right on his heels in verses 33 and 34. He writes, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. All right, so again, all these verses are just a continued elaboration on what Paul's just said in verse 31, that God is 
for us. Paul says that God demonstrates his love through these concrete actions, specifically by God justifying his people in Jesus. Starting in verse 33, you can see how Paul gives us several words here that are really taken straight out of the imagery of a courtroom. He essentially asks who will be able to effectively make a case against God's people and find them guilty of charges. He rhetorically asks who will be able to condemn God's people. It's easy to miss this, but Paul is likely referring to God's coming day of judgment when Jesus will come again to judge the earth. What we see throughout the New Testament is that in a very real sense, God's day of judgment and vindication has already started. It's already begun when Jesus came to this earth. God's future verdict that will be openly declared on judgment day has already been rendered in the past in Jesus' death and resurrection. It was at Jesus' cross that our sins were judged and we were declared righteous through Jesus' atoning death on our behalf. It was at Jesus' cross that our greatest enemies, they've already been defeated. And because we've been united to Jesus by faith, we share in his vindication already. We share in his resurrection already. A gift that we receive in part and we are awaiting its full consummation when the Lord Jesus comes again. It's clear in our passage the opposite of condemnation is this word, justification. An idea that's really at the heart of the book of Romans and a huge part of what we mean when we say the good news of the gospel. In other places in Romans, Paul's already said that because Jesus absorbed the just judgment our sins deserve and God's people have exchanged their guilt for his righteousness, then we are forever right with God. And so the work of God's justification in our lives, it's occurred in the past and it cannot be undone. It has secured our eternal destiny of glory and it's our greatest assurance that God is forever for us. He is not against us. The Bible's teaching on justification, it's so vital, it's so important for so many reasons. And one of the most important aspects of justification is that it teaches us what to do with our guilt. Despite having orthodox theology of justification, all of us at various points in our lives, we live like we're still in the courtroom awaiting God's verdict. Of course, godly guilt is good. Without it, we would be sociopaths who would never feel any sense of remorse over our sin. But you have to see that godly guilt always leads us to repentance, which leads to life. It never has shame or this despairing dejection as its goal. And it is absolutely crucial we understand the distinction between these two things within the Christian life. People of God, it's only Satan who wants you to live like you are still in the courtroom. He's called the accuser in the Bible for a very good reason, mainly because he wants to destroy you. He wants to harm you by crippling you with a load of guilt and shame that you feel like you just can't ever get off of you, no matter what you do. He does this by wanting you to feel guilty over things that aren't actually wrong, according to the Bible. And he wants you to feel debilitating guilt from your own sins. So you find yourself just constantly replaying them in your mind, and you just feel such deep despair and shame while you do this. How often do you feel this sense of despair because you feel like as a husband or a wife or as a son or a daughter or as a parent or as a friend or as a Christian, you just haven't measured up? 
and you feel like you never will. Some of us feel so much condemnation in these areas that it's difficult to imagine what would it feel like to not have to carry around that load of guilt every single day. People of God, you must trust that Satan will only be your accuser. He has no power over you as a judge. Only the living God is your judge, and the judgment that matters the most, it's already been rendered in Jesus' death and resurrection. God's justification of us in Christ, it's the only way we will know what to do with our guilt and how to stop living as if the jury is still out on whether or not God is going to declare you guilty or not. It's God's love and justification that enables us to know that you have the eternal smile of the Almighty God on you, that you forever have his love and his favor. It's only in the gospel that we learn the truth about who God is towards his people, that for those who look to God in faith, God is always the vindicating judge. He is never the prosecution. People of God, do you live each day with your head held high because you know that in Christ, God has forever declared you not guilty and that there's no sin in our lives that can't be forgiven by God, that can't be dealt with through repentance and faith? Are you listening to the voice of evil in your life that lies to you, that tells you that your guilt is too much, it's too great, and he can never get it off of you? Are you listening to the truth about your sins and your failures that you will only find through what God has done for you in Christ? So the work of justification, it puts God's love on display for the whole universe to witness. And this includes what Jesus has already accomplished in our behalf in his death and his resurrection. Notice also what Paul says at the end of verse 34 about Jesus' priestly work that continues on for us right now in the present. We're told that Jesus is currently at the right hand of God and that he is interceding for us. You ever wonder what Jesus is doing right now in heaven? What occupies his time? What occupies his energy? One of the more incredible things about our passage is that Paul tells us in verse 34 that as our great high priest, Jesus is at the Father's side advocating for us. And he's praying for us. He's praying for you. What do you think Jesus is praying for you right now in this moment? The Bible gives us a hint of what this might look like in places like the Gospels where we read about this scene where Jesus told Peter just before his own arrest and betrayal, he says to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. People of God, the risen Christ, he knows your name, and he loves you, and he sees all your suffering. He sees all your struggles. He sees the the fights with sin, and he's praying for you, that you're going to make it all the way to the end, to the finish line of being united with him in our eternal home forever. He's praying that your faith will endure that it will ultimately withstand all the assaults of the devil and all the painful trials that will be placed in our path. This is one of the greatest places we can find so much comfort and strength in the Christian life, that the Son of God is laboring in prayer for us right now. 
that we would persevere, that we would make it all the way to our eternal destination. Okay, so all that is what Paul tells us about the good news of God being for us in Christ. Let's turn our attention now to the second half of our passage in verses 35 to 39. We're going to read about the good news of Christ's love for his people. Notice what Paul says in verses 35 to 39. He gives us another set of rhetorical questions. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul gives us this significant list of all the various things that he and God's people face that can seem to threaten our connection to God's love in Jesus. Paul goes on to ask, he says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Then he quotes from Psalm 44, verse 22, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This psalm is significant because it describes the suffering and the oppression that God's enemies have afflicted on his people. And this psalm really ends with a cry for God to come and help. What ties this list of words together that Paul mentions in verse 35 is this experience of suffering. Suffering that will come our way specifically because we're followers of Jesus. And then suffering that will come our way because we live in a world that is fallen and broken. Nothing will make you question whether or not God loves you like you're suffering. Have you notice this? I think Paul instinctively knows this, and this is one of the reasons he gives us this long list of all these painful experiences. But Paul wants us to see that God's love for us in Jesus, it will always be bigger than your pain. God's love for us in Jesus is not a love that guarantees that we will escape the suffering or escape the opposition but that there is no suffering, there is no opposition we could experience that is strong enough to pull us away from his love. He's saying that we can still experience and be assured of Christ's profound love for us even while we suffer, even while we struggle. Then Paul goes on to say in verse 37 that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. This phrase, we are more than conquerors, is really translated from just one Greek word Paul uses that more or less says we are hyper-conquerors, that we conquer to the greatest degree possible. And again, the overwhelming truth that Paul is saying is that we don't conquer in our own strength or our own power. We don't overcome our enemies by sheer willpower that simply outgrinds our opponents. And we don't conquer using the strategies of the kingdoms of this world. Strategies that worship strength and view suffering as defeat. We conquer the same way the Lord Jesus did. Not by running from suffering and death, but by embracing it by faith. We have the assurance that we will be able to endure any suffering and opposition from this world because of the indestructible, inexhaustible love of Jesus. Because God's love will persevere in our own lives People of God, you will be able to persevere. Everything in this life that can hurt us, it has its time on the stage. And then it's done forever. The cancer or the depression, it will come and then one day it will be gone forever. The pain you endure from other people, one day will run out. 
our lifelong battles with sin or our flesh, they will one day expire. But God's love in Christ will remain on us forever. It will be the last man standing when every other pain or sinful opposition has been undone. And so because God's love will ultimately conquer and triumph over every experience of suffering, every opposition, every sin, then we too will ultimately conquer and triumph over all of these things. And finally, Paul's going to close our passage with what I think is one of the most moving, powerful descriptions of Jesus' love in all the scriptures. Look again at what he writes. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is quite an exhaustive list, isn't it? Paul's piling one thing on top of the other in his beautifully poetic way in order to help us see that there is nothing in the world in the world more powerful than the love of God given to us in Jesus. What we see here at the end of our passage is that God's love in Christ is really the most powerful force in the universe. From an earthly standpoint, we know that receiving love makes people very resilient. Research has proven this in a variety of ways. Studies have shown that children who grow up in homes where they are connected to stable, loving parents They grow into adults who statistically have fewer struggles with all kinds of things, whether it's depression or anxiety or addiction or other things. And if that's true of the finite, imperfect love of sinful human beings, how much more true is this when people are connected to the living God, the only being in the universe who is infinite and eternal, the only one who is sinless and whose love never runs out? So receiving God's love makes us into people who are able to endure and persevere in the midst of suffering and all kinds of hardships. This means that we as the people of God have a strength that is anchored in something infinitely deeper than anything the world has to offer us. We have a strength that is not rooted in ourselves. We as God's people are not strong because we are inherently better than anyone else. We possess an enormous strength rather because of the one who loves us. A love that is powerful enough to overcome any obstacle and triumph over any external physical or spiritual force that wars against it. The truth about God's love in Christ is not some mushy sentiment that we should reserve only for our bumper stickers or our t-shirts. No, the truth about God's inseparable love for his people And Jesus instead makes God's people really the most dangerous people on earth to the spiritual forces of darkness that work in our world. We are dangerous because God's love will empower us to be ultimately unbeatable. Because after we follow the Lord Jesus through the path of suffering and death, we will join him in his eternal glory as every opposition against him is fully defeated and cast away from God into eternal darkness. Listen to what a Christian scholar and theologian says uh, that I really love. A guy named N.T. Wright. Some of you know who he is. He wrote a commentary on on Romans. This is what he says about the love of God in our passage. Listen to this. This love of God calls across the dark intervals intervals of meaning, reaches into the depths of human despair, embraces those who live in the shadow of death or the overbright light of present life, 
challenges the rulers of the world and shows them up as a sham, looks at the present with clear faith and at the future with sure hope, overpowers all powers that might get in the way, fills the outer dimensions of the cosmos, and declares to the world that God is God, that Jesus the Messiah is the world's true Lord, and that in him love has won the victory. People of God, do you believe this incredible truth today? That there is nothing in your life that is bigger than God's love for you in the gospel? That there's nothing in your life in the present? There is nothing awaiting us in our future as God's people that will ever sever us from God's love. Trusting and believing this is the place where we find our greatest source of strength, our greatest source of confidence and joy as believers, our greatest source of comfort. The greatest news that we could hear, the greatest news our world needs to hear right now is that this kind of assurance is ours as we look away from ourselves to what God has accomplished for us in Jesus in the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for the work of the Lord Jesus, what he's done on our behalf. Father, would you overwhelm us this morning uh, with a fresh understanding of the love of Jesus and what that means for our lives personally and what that means for our world. Father, would you bless us as we continue in our service? Would you draw near to us through the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. We probably sing in his name. Amen.